0: Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling.
1: Welcome. I'm Ross Lauder, your host from Single Focus Talent, and I'm joined by our non-exec director, John Quigley, today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Today, we are joined by Rena Hegarty, CMO at Oversee. I really was excited to have Rina on this call because she's taken her career from marketing coordinator right the way up to being a CMO. I think she could bring a lot to the table by way of explaining how uh, to go about that journey, what companies and opportunities have led, led her to that, how she's been able to execute uh, the relationship with sales. I'm, I'm also very uh, excited to have the fact that she's a marketing person on today's call and, and, and often sales guys need to be kind of whipped into line and held accountable and ensure they follow up on leads. So that's going to be a hot topic today. Uh, Reena is also from Ireland's most, uh, second most populous city, should I say. Uh, some would call it the real capital of Ireland. Uh, they've had inward investment from household names like EMC, Dell, McAfee Quest, Sorrowinds, VMware, and, 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 and Teamwork, I know, is a more indigenous company as well. So a huge hive of activity. Um, so keen to look at that today. And then walking through some of the leadership things that she's um, utilized in her own career to drive her own team forward um, and ultimately get. Get great results. So, uh, welcome today to today's uh, discussion, Rena.
0: Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me. And I definitely will call it the real capital. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no doubt you will. No doubt you will. The People's Republic of Cork is well known. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so I suppose, Rena, maybe if you would just take us through your own career. You know, your education, uh, why you're passionate about what you do, and and kind of what what's led you to where you are today. If you would.
0: Yeah. Sure. So I guess in school, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, So followed, I have an older sister. I just followed her path, did what she did. I did a Bachelor of Arts in English and History. So really kind of like said, don't know what I want to do. Just get my degree and then I'll figure it out from there. And I don't really know how or I figured out I wanted to be in marketing. But I guess I've always been kind of a bit creative. So I then went on to do a a postgrad in marketing in UCC so after that then i mean at the time it was back in 2008 i think it maybe was um and it was it was quite difficult to get marketing jobs in cork and you know being from cork i'm a pure home bird so i um, obviously didn't want to leave cork so it was i really kind of fell in I, it was like the hunt was on just to find like any marketing job and just kind of cut my teeth and get into the industry because I still think today like getting that first job is the hardest you know especially if you want to break into that this sector right so um started got a marketing coordinator role it was actually in retail so with an Irish fashion retailer and um they were down in West Cork and I it was small really really small group and they I, I there had been someone there previously in marketing but I they had left um you know had their kids decided you know not don't don't want to come back, and I kind of stepped into that then. So I was by myself in the marketing area, so it was quite tough. But it was a really steep learning curve. So I was kind of thrown into it and learned really quickly, I guess. Um, so I think that kind of helped. And as well, what I learned there as well is I, you know, it's one of a really small company, so it was like all hands on deck. So really, I kind of learned a lot of other functions as well there. Um, and then after that, um, I, again, I was actually made redundant from there um, on the 23rd of December. How depressing is that? Um, so <laughs> wow, then, well, time to do it. So I guess for I our, know.
1: our listeners, what, what does redundant mean? Because I know for um, US folks, they're not as familiar with that term. Um, there's obviously getting fired. There is like being, uh, there's kind of your, your job isn't available. Like maybe just take us through that kind of from an Irish context, if you would.
0: Yeah, so... It's, the, it's really, you know, so many times we say I was made redundant, but really it's the role is made redundant and I just happened to be in that role. So they were going through some changes. They no longer required a marketing person there. So that's the role was not, it was removed, I guess. So then that meant I lost my job.
1: That makes sense. And I guess I think this is a key point and it's something we'll discuss on further shows as well, which is we're very much a halfway house between the US where there are certain, you know, right to work states. You can be let go because they don't like your haircut on a Wednesday afternoon type of thing versus uh, the kind of Germany and France's of this world where it's... uh, near impossible to fire or get or get, let somebody go or in fact make the role redundant. You need to reallocate that person. It could be up to a two year payoff. There's a negotiation with the union, etc. So I suppose we're that halfway house where we would have typically maybe a number of months of of paid leave. It's very tax efficient to do that. And um, but also, you know, competitive the company can remain competitive as well. So just just a point I wanted to highlight, but please do continue.
0: Yeah. So then after um, my role was made redundant done there, I went on, this is then when I kind of started getting into tech, but again, it wasn't a choice. It was just, I wanted to progress my career and find continue like marketing. I just really wanted to progress, but to continue my, my career in marketing. Okay. So um, I joined as a marketing executive for um, the UK. So it was like a field marketing role and it was for an audio and web conferencing provider, uh, but they were really kind of like positioning themselves as a software company. So I started there and really I think that's where I got into B2B. I like hated B2C as much as I was getting the experience as a marketing coordinator in retail. I just didn't, it just, I didn't feel as passionate about it. Okay. But then when I got into the field marketing role, that's then really when I started to kind of enjoy it. And I think it was that B2B tech space. It was so fast paced. It was just really innovative and I just feel I find my people there as well, you know? Sure. I was there for about a year and a half and then I in 2011 I moved to Quest and I was there for eight years up until last year and that's really where I really I would say kind of developed and progressed my career so started is in kind of like a marketing exec role and like a digital marketing manager progressed then up to you know a Campaign program manager, then pr- got promoted to being the manager of that team. Then kind of expanded my focus to become a senior manager within the marketing team, and then was promoted to be the marketing director of the Amia region, and then I also took on the the Latin America region as well. So kind of kept progressing as I went on to take on more responsibility. And probably one of the great things is I got to do every job I did when I when I left Quest last year. I had then done every job within the marketing team. So which was really helped me in my leadership role.
1: So from a marketing standpoint, I guess what, what would be helpful um, to kind of understand is the progression of how you reach people. So we've had people on the show so far. We've talked about sales prospecting. Uh, we've talked about how we used to you know, phone people back when that used to work um, versus the kind of email cadence, social media cadence. And, um, would you maybe just take us through the kind of shift of what that used to look like and, and, and you'll excuse the crudity of my example here you know back in the day you used to uh, send a field sales guy out with a brochure under his arm and say best of luck go knock on some doors and tell the world how great we are and it was all about print and it was all about brand and things like that I mean I, I worked at HubSpot and brand was the dirtiest word in there because they're like okay well can you show me the metrics behind your brand and how it's been great and how that's led to ROI and people are like oh I don't know so maybe if you could tell kind of the shift i'm very interested in your digital marketing piece because a lot of that is highly trackable you can then literally feed it into salesforce to a closed deal etc um and also please by all means take the gloves off and uh, tell us about uh, the sales guys not following up on those and, and what that shift has looked like for you and for them
0: yeah um loads of so much to talk about there um and all of that so and it's, it's actually really interesting right because I, it last year or so in 2019 so I've been in like the corporate world for you know my entire career pretty much except for last July when I actually left to now take up my position in Oversea but Oversea is very much in the startup scale up world and I mean there, like there was no marketing before then so it's just I, I even in the last year the amount of reflection I've done on this to even see the differences between what I did in say my corporate role versus now is, is really interesting so and um, I think going back to where you started in terms of the progression, like, it's funny how we're, I, I see we're almost making a shift now. So talking even again, is like, you know, looking at print, what it was, with a brochure. Like, funny enough, that's actually coming back now because the digital world is so swamped and we all get about a million emails. and There's so much content online, really? you know, that a lot of the times what we've seen and what we did at Quest a good bit as well is, you know, send a handwritten personalized letter or, you know, send kind of like what we used to call them, like, um, like care packages or things like that. And, and actually, when I was in my quest role, I got a handwritten postcard from a promotions company and it just said, hi, Rena, you know, if you're ever interested and, a per- and I kept it for ages and I still remember it. And, you know, it just really resonated with me, you know, yeah, so I'll that's just that one idea area. One. Say it again.
1: I I was gonna say I almost steal that idea. It's a very innovative one. It's all about kind of breaking through the uh the 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 the, um norm of what's out there because people are overwhelmed, right?
0: Yeah. And be and standing out. And you know what so look you know, to your point there, right? Digital digital marketing practices and tactics. I mean, there I could talk so long around all the areas in which kind of like the avenues in which kind of we deliver messages now, but one of the biggest things that I've kind of realized since leaving is that I actually think there's too much of a focus on the tactics. Like we're, we're, you know, so mindful now of, or so, I guess caught up with how do we get in front of our audience that we actually don't stop to say, okay, thinking about the message we're actually putting there and actually saying, what do they want to hear? How do they want to receive it? What do they truly care about and why should they care? And I think it's only from going to oversee that it really made me step back to say, like why should they care like instead of actually deciding okay should it be a white paper should it be a a trial like what do they really want to care about so I think it's about now I think marketing there's so much noise out there that I think to really stand out from the noise it's really focusing on the why would they care and delivering like compelling content like and that can be through any means, whether it is trying to cut through the noise by doing going back to the traditional route or doing your traditional channels like you know social you know syndicating content online and um, you know advertising you know so many tactics, but I think the tactics need to come second, whereas too often I think they come first
2: interesting see I, I love this that this is right up my street, and it's actually given us a bit of a hint uh, as to the kind of type of leader that you are Rena, in terms of a CMO for me it's probably one of the most pivotal and important roles in, in the entire organization and you know so some CMOs are very focused on corporate marketing some are very focused on on the tactical in the weed stuff right around the execution some are focused on really good at kind of demand gen and, you know, the content piece and all of that kind of stuff. But I think the most, particularly in this crisis, right, I think the most important thing um, is for um, marketeers and, you know, CMOs to be hyper-focused on the customer-facing uh, problems and challenges and what that value is proposition kind of represents no because the buyer's journey doesn't follow a linear course and you know for me it's really about revenue attribution if you don't have revenue attribution you're kind of exposed because you're unable to allocate time money resources to the marketing efforts that produce top line results so if you can't quantify the collective impact of marketing touch points then you're kind of left guessing right so for me, the what do you guys do in terms of marketing, in terms of revenue attribution in general, um, attributing uh, you know every piece of revenue that happens in in the organization to particularly marketing activities and marketing contribution? Have you guys cracked that yet, or is it a work in progress? Or
0: well, I would say for in overseas, definitely, I think actually it's always a work in progress because, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to get it right. But that is something like, I think marketing do get a bad rap and it's especially kind of really, it, it's, it's awful when you, you know, know the value, but it's sometimes seen as fluffy, you know, and that's why like my main thing is to be able to attribute value. But then I think you've got to be really cautious and careful because I think in too many organisations as well, again the KPIs and the metrics can come first like you know sometimes oh god we have to hit you know a thousand leads this month and then all of a sudden it just becomes filling the funnel with crap rather than actually saying look let's finish it with quality you know making sure it's the right metrics are going to the, the metrics and the KPIs will drive the right behavior you know
2: they always um, say not 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 everything that, uh, that matters can, can be measured and not everything that's measured matters
0: and i think that's that's a that's a fair point in that like there's some things that are difficult like you know pr and analyst engagement like that's something we're doing a huge amount of stuff in media reach at the moment but it is hard to measure because um but you know but it's then agreeing upfront like what those kpis are and benchmarks and milestones along the way so that you always before you start anything is nail okay what's our expectations what does success look like and some of those might have to be softer softer KPIs but like the way I would look at and so what we do and when we came into oversee was okay starting with I guess this was my approach and this is how I would take the approach is starting with why should people care you know understanding what are we doing who are we why should you care then the next thing down, which is something I never did in, in quest. And this is also, which I can talk about in a minute, in, in a minute is probably why there's such a disconnect. I think sometimes between sales and marketing is I never spoke to customers and then asked them, said to them, okay, this is why I think you care. You tell me now, if you agree with it and if this is really what the situation is and these are the pains you encounter. So in overseas, that was the next thing I did was, you know, built a really good relationship with some of our key customers who I would talk to almost on a weekly basis and now you know we'd have to crack and have the chats you know as well um and then once then you kind of get that established then start building okay your messaging your content and then your campaign tactics and outreach and then actually building in okay how can I show value here what are my targets working really closely with sales to say okay what is the revenue target and working back benchmarks conversions so that you can say okay to get to that revenue number we need to get to x amount of leads x amount of web traffic but letting those be like not kind of like your live or die by but letting those be your indicators whether you're on course or off course so that you just you're constantly staying true to your why and the customer rather than letting the benchmarks lead you or the KPIs lead you, if that makes sense.
2: So it is, yeah. I mean, the, the, for me, it's all been the kind of triangle of the voice of of the customer, product development, and sales engineering as well. So, you know, you develop that go-to-market based on, and that sales engineering piece based on, on how people buy. But another important thing, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, um, to understand the sentiment. Um, and you mentioned, you know, you might make an allocation of, of, uh, some of your, your marketing spend on the PR piece or whatever. And that can be hugely important depending on, uh, how people buy, where they hang out, what they expect, etc. uh, more so more in some companies than, than, uh, other companies. But, you know, it's just, um, it's, it, it's really important to, understand the behavior of what what are people actually doing more so than what are they saying. Because sometimes people when when, when you when you talk to customers and you talk to people they they tell you sometimes that this is what they would do or this is how uh, you know how they go about things. But really it's about how are they behaving and what are they doing to solve some of the problems that your stuff solves. Would you agree or disagree?
0: I do, yeah. And sometimes they might not know themselves, you know, which is difficult. So I think sometimes it can be True. difficult to really get to the heart of that. You're right, yeah. Um, but it's and and that's why there's there, it, there's so many different metrics that I would now look at that I probably haven't before, and it does all center around that customer behavior. So one is talking to them, and engaging with them, and you know, sharing. Stuff with them and then getting their feedback on it, but also like looking at like user metrics as well. Like, what are they using? How are they using it? Like, even with our software, like seeing are they doing what they say they're doing, you know, and talking about all aspects of the business as well. Jumping on like when or calls where like our product team are having support calls. Sometimes I've just joined in to listen to some of the support conversations because they, you know, some of our customers might share different things there that. They might, not, they might not even think to share with me, but that could be hugely valuable. So I do definitely agree with you on that.
1: So I'm really interested in learning, like, how do you close the loop then with sales? And, you know, by all means, please share stories of, you know, calamities, etc. But obviously, you're, you're very in tune with product development. The support piece, I think, is crucial there. Maybe just how do you educate and kind of get sales on board and, and, and vice versa? What does that relationship look like throughout your career?
2: And that's actually going to be my next question, which is we're we're very aligned on that, Ross. I was literally going to ask you that question. Yeah, I think it's an important question.
0: Yeah. and, And I would say to go back to what you said there, like, I feel I'm in tune with that now. But like looking back at my when I was marketing director in Quest, I don't think I was in tune with that at all. And, you know, so how do I, I guess. I guess some of the faux pas, I think looking back is, you know, you can see some of the breakdowns in that, how we kind of close the loop back to sales is that I think it's one of the things I think is challenging is that marketing and sales are often seen as not on the same team. Sometimes they are on the same team, you know, in terms of reporting into the same leader, but I don't, I still don't think that really makes a difference. I think it's like have to, having to be on the same team. So I mean, I do think you could have as many sales meetings as you wanted and sales and marketing meetings, but unless you're actually speaking the same language, I think, you know, it's probably useless. So I would say having that regular form of communication and cadence, um, regular meetings, but also actually bringing them in from the very start. So not just kind of developing all of this knowledge and insight and marketing kind of approach all by yourself as a team and then all of a sudden going back to sales and saying right this is what we're doing now give me your feedback if it's good or bad I think it's actually bringing them through the process as well so that you're they feel inherently part of the plan I guess so that then you're all in it together I guess and so the, and I think like you know this whole I do think one of the thing, things that have have gone wrong is that you know it's all about like marketing will always think oh you're not following up on the leads correctly and sales will always think yeah but the leads are crap you know sure. and I think that's probably from a marketing perspective I think it's probably because we don't bring sales in early enough um and it's, as well we probably do not articulate enough of the why we are doing certain things you know
2: I've been banging a drum about and um, the concept of revenue ops so you got sales ops marketing ops but You know, my view is that there's an emergence now of a concept of of revenue ops where, uh, you know, there's a a functional area that owns the operational and technical and support piece that support the entire sales and marketing and and kind of product um, um, functional alignment, uh, either through technology. Or through you know cross-functional collaboration around how do we support all of these initiatives and sales motions and these kind of things? Um, have you come across that at all, revenue ops? Or is it is it something that uh, you would lean towards? Because my experience is that these are all kind of separate functions in organizations. You got marketing ops and sales ops and product ops and all these kind of siloed uh, organizations that are using different technologies and none of it is aligned.
0: It's funny because I hadn't I hadn't come across it in my experience or yet, but I it was actually the concept I first heard of it actually on a podcast, a sales podcast last week, and it was kind of like a, a dawning moment. He, he, I think I can't remember who it was now, but it was some someone in the tech world in a VP sales leadership role, and how the, he has someone who leads revenue ops, and under that then he has his individual like sales ops person who just kind of specifically and, and he splits those off. But that revenue yes. person looks at everything and like it was kind of like a light bulb moment because it makes so much sense I can't believe it hasn't been done before because it's that cohesive if you can get all of that together because ultimately it's the one plan and like areas where and I I I don't think it's a purposeful thing where marketing and sales obviously want to like disagree or to kind of break down but I do think it stems from all these like the way the the how things are reported and how things are looked at and like setting the individual targets. And I do think you need individual targets, but I think there's nowhere where everyone rolls up to see the bigger picture and how that feeds in. Like in, you know, some of the most cringeworthy moments, I think back to saying, no wonder sales came back and thought, you know, what are marketing doing is like, we, we had, we were in like a quarterly business review meeting, you know, where everyone gets together, reviews the quarter and sales had like completely missed um, the plan, the revenue plan. But in terms of our marketing kind of contribution to pipeline goals or marketing contribution to revenue goals or conversion rates, like we had actually overachieved our targets. And one of the marketing team got up and um, did their presentation and said, Great! Such a successful quarter. We hit our targets. Woo! 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 Great! We're great. We're great. And like being a sales guy, of course, you're gonna say, "Well, like, I like if the business doesn't hit the plan, none of us hit the plan." You know, even if we overachieve our targets or individual KPIs, we still can't be sharing success. Okay, it shows positive indicators that we're on the right track and things are going well. But we all then have to knuckle down to say, "Okay, let's look at the bigger picture and why did we still not get there?" Rather than singing our own individual praises. Because I think if we continue to do that, it will just, we'll never get to that unity. Well, it's back
2: to the revenue attribution piece. uh, That uh, that exercise um, would, uh, or that process would allow everybody to understand if at the top of the funnel, this action is going on and we're going down, everybody would understand then kind of... um, uh, and, and obviously, it would be retrospectively because you, you'd only see the impact of that activity in in you know the quarter after or the quarter after that. And you would say, "Hey, th- these are the deals that we closed, and they are we're attributing that revenue to these activities and to these marketing, these core marketing activities to to marketing's contribution here, here, and here." And, and and it makes sense to everybody because then then you know how to kind of double down and allocate more revenue, or you you figure out what's working and what's not working and that kind of thing. Um, to tell us about the the components of uh, or, or or the important components of structuring. Uh, a successful sales motion or campaigns and I know that uh, what is sometimes overlooked is is product marketing Uh, product marketing to support with the supporting collateral and all of those kind of elements um, is hugely important and significant uh, in any successful campaign but if, if you were to give us the the kind of top three or four ingredients for a uh, successful sales motion or sales play around a particular product or whatever, or, you know, um, what, what would they be?
0: Yeah. Oh, the top three be like, I, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, before any kind of sales motion or any campaign, it, there ha- like I think the sales enablement piece is absolutely critical. And I do see, you know, that's in terms of understanding the proposition the value again why they should care you know what what we're actually delivering here and what the value is and understanding that value and how to communicate that value so um that's probably the first thing in terms of like empowering and enabling them to actually help them understand and then hone their message and pitch you know um what else then in terms of like collateral then i I think obviously like uh, like definitely need to help them on like identify what to listen for so it's kind of like that typical battle card I think as well it's like objection handling like what I've noticed is is you know in in Oversea you know we we've we've really nailed our pitch you know and we thought yeah great fantastic but then all of a sudden we realized we haven't done a lot, we had not done a lot of work on like the objection handling or like how to respond to certain things and that's then where sales felt a bit weak so it's then trying to predict what are some of those objections coming back and then how to handle them and how to get around that and how to address that. So I'd say, you know, that battle card, then competitive differentiators, how we are different, you know, how we stand out. I think that would be the second thing. And what's the third thing then? Like, I suppose you said the components to empower a sales and the uh, before campaign, let me think. I think it's just then. Yeah, go on.
1: I suppose, uh, Rena, one of the things I see as a key failing is that there's a massive assumption that all leads are created equal. And what, what I mean by that is there. there's also, I mean, there also could be a um, uh, a notion that if somebody has a white paper download, that that's a crap lead. And somebody has a trial download, that that's an amazing lead. And I'll tell you why that they're both myths. And the reason is, is that you could get a guy download a white paper, who's just an academic and interested in learning about a particular topic. Or you could get a CIO, CEO, or CTO rather, download a white paper because he's at the beginning phases of researching a big, big transformation that they're doing in their IT architecture, for example. Similarly, on the trial side, you could get somebody who's downloading a trial because they're actually going to start a... um, side-by-side comparison of your product versus uh, you know maybe one of your competitor or just you know wants to try before they buy or you could get somebody who's downloading a trial because they've nothing else better to do with their day than kick tires of software vendors um, and have no intention of using it i mean i certainly saw that at hubspot which is a unbelievable end-to-end marketing tool but there was plenty of people kicking tires all day long so it's really about that kind of qualification piece in the middle and also marketing saying well look guys Here's where, what somebody is doing and, and here's the nature of the, the conversation you could or could not have with them. And, and that kind of helps manage the pipeline a bit better, understand the qualification of where they are in, in the process. Because, as you said, creating a thousand leads could be a good or a bad thing. But let's look at the, the scoring of those. What are the you know the, the levels of those kind of qualifications? Would you, would you say you've kind of had that uh, kind of segmentation pay off for you?
0: oh so it's a really difficult one, this is probably you know the white paper is like you know the white paper leaves. My God, everyone could write a book on that. Oh, I remember. It's um, <laughs> just the I, everyone that's the eternal battle, but it, it's I I wouldn't say that like the largely that in in overseas now in a smaller scale it's so much easier because there's there's less people I guess and there's less um layers so to get that the the communication between sales and marketing is fantastic where we are now, but that's because we are small. I mean, it's harder as you scale. So like in quest, it was very difficult. Um, and it's because yes, it is hard. And, and this is, I was just going to say where lead scoring does come in, but it's still never going to be a hundred percent perfect because you know, you can't a hundred percent chime out or close out or avoid sending some of the people who are just you know maybe a consultant and just downloading a white paper have no intention of buying like it's hard sometimes to completely stop that and versus those people who are legitimately downloading a white paper to start their research because we know you know on the buyer's journey like people Mm -hmm. I think in like now I think look at like at least like seven or eight pieces of content before they're even ready to engage you know so I think the the number one crucial thing is um the communication loop. So I think, it, well, actually, even before that, it's like setting the right expectation because for marketing, like people love downloading white papers because we know that's where they start to do their research and, pe- and that's how you start generating net new contacts within your database that you can retarget. So like it's a great marketing acquisition tactic. Okay. It may not necessarily be a warm lead, but it's, it's to try and generate net new people into the top of the funnel, it's fantastic. But then to sales, sometimes for sales, it can be, you know, pretty tough having to kind of dial out to that, you know, it's a, it can be a, sometimes a colder call. So I think it's crucial setting that expectation on why marketing are still continuing to generate white paper leads when sales are constantly feeding back that it's poor quality and it is to, for, for net new. Um, But also lead scoring, it's continuing that feedback loop to make sure that sales are are actually following up with giving, educating, marketing on what they're hearing so that marketing can really adjust that lead scoring to say, okay, hold those white papers back and maybe it's, okay, when they hit their third white paper, maybe then generate the lead. What about uh,
2: lead disposition? Um, That's important, isn't
0: it? Lead disposition is in like following up from sales.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, um, defined reasons, uh, as 100%. to, as to, uh, why I feel this is qualified or not qualified. And, uh, given, given that feedback, I mean, I'm, I come from a time where, uh, every lead is, is gold dust, you know, actually, do you think salespeople have it too easy these days with the advent of inbound and all of the interest in your product? Because Try try working for fledgling software organizations where you're you're in absolute obscurity and people have no idea who you are or what you do. Uh, for me, the benefit of anyone even looking at a white paper is now you're 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 crawling out of realms of obscurity. Um, I wouldn't say you're into ubiquitous territory yet but at least you know people are are looking and seeing and knowing and that kind of thing do you think salespeople people have it too easy
0: i'll be slaughtered for this now but i, I would say yes <laughs> um and, <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> and i you know it's funny and it's only now because especially again it's like this so interesting comparison to where i am now where we get it if i one of our sales reps now who gets a lead because they're so few and far between because we're only ramping they, and even if this lead has done anything even if I can find someone who's just happened to say like oh it might not even be in our ideal customer profile they still want to contact them they're like give it to me give it to me you know awesome. and because they're so hungry and but then you know I look back to the times of question a hundred percent that like you know absolutely there's a bit you you just get complacent I guess and you like a certain type of lead and I've no I've been frustrated where I've known that you know white paper leads it was the policy within certain teams and this was decided by senior management and sales that they wanted all white papers to go to a certain sales team and that they had to follow up on them but I knew some of the salespeople weren't following up because they said no you know I'm not going to waste my time on that and they were just sitting there aging and aging getting cold and then they'd wait for maybe the request quote to the trials and prioritize them that way So yeah, I do think there is a bit of that complacency in it that they have it too easy. Now, not in all cases, but
1: like one of the reasons I'm so passionate about software startups is because you get that laser focus. I mean, Quest, for example, when we were there, Rena, um, I don't know, I, I want to say they had 200 plus products in their portfolio. They had different levels of maturity. Quest was a very acquisitive company. There would be a handful of acquisitions per year. Um, and then suddenly, you know, you're a, you're a sales guy and you have a handful more Uh, products in your portfolio which you probably haven't been trained on and you're asked to go out and sell there and uh, you know there's different levels of leads where it's white papers versus trial downloads versus event attendees etc and everything in between and you're like I I can't keep up whereas in a software startup you're like okay every dollar we we spend is crucial we need to see return investment for this and you know you can actually track what that is and you're also as a salesperson having the same conversation you're focused in on a target you know ideally you're in a hugely innovative space the product is just kick-ass anyway it's really solving a problem for somebody and it's being adopted that's why they exist and ideally they've been funded for that very reason um and if you've an abundance of leads you can segment and you can spend your time and nurture etc Um, would you would you share that experience that it, you know that the laser focus really allows you to scale a little bit more
0: it does i, I guess yeah like i mean it does allow you scale a bit more, but I think then you have to, I do think then it's a case of if there are leads being generated that are just going untouched, then I think it's a case of you just have to look at the model then. It's like, you know, and, and maybe it is just changing the model to make sure, okay, do we need to generate that amount of leads? Should we instead invest more of our Investment in really going after those particular leads that are seeming to convert, and I do think that is going back to it's finding that balance as well, you know, between sales and marketing. So I do agree with laser focus, but then I think sometimes you just have to put in a bit of a hard graft as well, you know, at times. Yeah. And I do, you know, and just like because you never know what's out there, and you know, you could be missing a huge opportunity that then they might be going to your competitors. So I think it's like splitting it eighty percent. I would say at the time, yes, absolutely, go after that laser focus on high quality stuff that you know converts but then i do think there is needing to go after some of the other stuff as well you know
2: okay so have you ever been in in a situation where you your gut feeling or evidence shows you that the sales organizational structure is completely wrong and what i mean by that is you know you're you're over there on one side um being asked to to generate um Content and generate demand uh, for you know, as Ross pointed out, you know, it could be a hundred different products in, in, in you know in, in in a in a product portfolio. But um, and and you look at the sales organization structure and you say that's all kinds of wrong because the motions and plays that you have to develop, uh, you you get those done sales looks at them but doesn't really execute or implement any of them because of the structure of the organization uh they're they're going after different type of deals they're going after different uh product sets and they're not focused on the areas that you have put in the effort to do sales plays because it just doesn't work does it there's a disconnect there have you have you encountered that situation at all because to me in my experience Marketing doesn't really have any influence on that sales structure. And that must be frustrating.
0: I was just gonna say that's the word I was gonna use. I have encountered that a lot, and it is incredibly frustrating. and um, and it just then, you know, continues to perpetuate the disconnect then between marketing and sales and sales, you know, at the management level, I've had that conversation with so many sales leaders, and it's just really they've all said, Yeah, okay, so I'll take your feedback, but nothing's changed. And of course, then that just further down then to the sales reps and to my marketing team at the time, it just further creates that disconnect, you know, because neither can understand why are you not taking my feedback? Why are, why are things not changing? And like, I mean, I, I have regularly tried to change lead scoring where I have, pr- my preference would have been to deliver less leads and do a, and hold a lot of the rest back and nurture them and pre-qualify them and do so much other marketing stuff in the back in the front end, or the back end before delivering those leads to sales because I do think the less leads you get, the more hungry sales are going to get. And I'd prefer to deliver less leads but higher quality. And also, you know, there's been times where, in terms of a structure of um, like, certain trials, like in particular product sets, there was huge abuse of trial downloads. You know and that by holding like just had so many suggestions about how we could maybe change the sales model in terms of like maybe bringing on an SDR function and just kind of changing some of the um, follow-ups so, but yeah now you know sometimes my feedback would be taken on but not always and it, that that was what I did find hard in that corporate world and in my experience that might be different other places but marketing I had a great relationship with Sales, and you know, I, we were very well respected, but I felt my influence in making change was quite difficult. and um, Whereas now, in this where I am now, I feel I have a huge input to that, and you know, it's very much taken that's, on board.
1: That's a very interesting point, and, and, and I think that that's a function as well at the size of the organization and the kind of camaraderie and the team spirit. and Every hire is a key hire, and everybody's bought into doing their own thing. I suppose, and one of the other things I'm really interested in exploring is is really having that difficult conversation with marketing. So we've talked about having the difficult sales conversation, but how about the internal difficult conversation with marketing and maybe broader leadership? And, and what I mean by that is I've often worked for organizations and been involved in the process whereby you've got a US-centric model, which is very homogeneous, and then you're suddenly broadening uh, your focus into a heterogeneous market. So. For US multinationals, logically, they they would gravitate towards Ireland for lots of different reasons. And we've talked about this on prior shows around tax and talent, and and the language is also a key one as well. But uh, then you're suddenly having these conversations around customizing your marketing for different countries, and you're differing your spend in different currencies, you've different languages to deal with. Um, And you also have different laws, quite frankly. And I won't go into GDPR today, that's too big a topic. But how do you communicate that, you know what, it might be more expensive to do business here, um, but, but it's a crucial component of doing business? What does that look like for you in your career, Rina?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, certainly being, you know, the EMEA leader for EMEA, or yeah, EMEA and LATAM, the region leader, it, like a lot, like many other corporates, you know, product marketing, or a lot of the kind of campaign messaging, corporate messaging, you know, a lot of the campaigns and the overarching approach and go to market is built primarily from from North America and you know there is it it I did I have found it quite difficult and it in my role at Quest like it took a long time over the years to constantly remind people and not not remind actually educate people on how things are different in Europe and even though the differences might be subtle it makes a big impact like in terms of messaging. You know, I think sometime over in Europe, like we can, you know, especially in the UK and Ireland, we're a bit of a cynical bunch, you know. I mean, so you need to sure. the messaging has to be a bit tailored, you know. Um and also We don't want to see like,
2: pictures of the Super Bowl and all that crap, right? <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> in the
2: imagery and you know
0: <laughs> And like we yeah, we don't always like it's like be awesome, you know you know we're 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 a bit too cynical for that at times. Sure. So it's like altering that. Also then like Building in timelines for things like language, you know, like all of a sudden you'll hear about a launch of a campaign, a new go-to-market strategy for a particular product line, and you think, "Oh crap!" Like, I mean, how am I going to deliver this in regional local language because I don't have time? Like, that hasn't been built in now to this, and we can't deliver it to say Italy or France in English, you know? So there's a huge amount of education, and it took me a long time to. Like it was constantly talking and building relationships, educating people, forcing myself into conversations, having to have really difficult conversations with people as well and really calling it out um, before it finally started to kind of resonate, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can totally relate to that. And you're also getting guys, you know, speak French and German, you know, to pull them off another project because you need something translated, etc. And then their performance dips in whatever their role might be as well. But I suppose in some ways, that's kind of the exciting part of a of a startup, but uh, it's often, it's often quite quite often reality, you know. Um, so, so I'm keen to also explore um, some of your leadership um, experiences, Rena. I know that uh, you are uh, very akin to the Ken Blanchard uh, leadership training, which I would rate very, very highly. Um, what's been your experience there? How have you kind of? Uh, become a leader yourself uh, and and really I'm keen to know about fostering others and and making them uh, perform to their best and you know obviously sometimes in marketing can be a little bit more intangible but what did kind of outcomes look like for those guys that you mentored and coached along the way?
0: Yeah like that's probably something that I'm most passionate about is like I love I really love being a leader and I think it's something I, you know, if someone came came to me tomorrow and said, Oh, you're crap at marketing. I'd say, ah, yeah, whatever. But if someone told me I'm a crap leader, I, that would absolutely kill me, you know, because I think that's something I ha- has like having strong leadership has gotten me, I think to where I am today. So that's why I kind of want to be able to do that for the people. And I just love helping people grow and develop. So, um, I guess in leadership like getting into leadership I was very like it, it was it, it's bloody tough I would say you know I mean like you I I don't I didn't get a lot of training and I don't and that's not as if like you know blaming anyone but it's just I don't think there's in that first leap from individual contributor to management like it's kind of like you're just thrown into it a bit you know and it's like figure it out by making mistakes and um, so, and I, there's definitely mistakes in, in, especially in terms of style, like, you know, you kind of have some, I found I initially had this defense mechanism. So I felt I had to be really authoritative and not show vulnerability. And I adopted my same style with everybody, but like quite quickly, you know, I saw conflict there. So like the Ken Lodger training that I we did do, which was all around like identifying, the different style to the different tasks rather than the person I think was really helpful. So having some of those frameworks really did help me um, along the way. But a lot of it I would say as well was, I would say even trial and error, you know, and which was awful for, for me. And that's why now as a leader, some some of the things that I am very conscious of, and especially in Quest where I had a much bigger team was like really open, honest communication like really having that conversation very quickly, immediately and early on to say, where do you wanna go in your career and what are your career aspirations? And having those conversations at a quarterly basis, because sometimes people might not, might actually, and I had team members like this, they said, you know what? I'm happy where I am, I just wanna continue. And that's totally fine, things might change, but at least then you know, okay, that's where I need to support them, but otherwise, other times then you might have team members who who say, you know, I want to get into people management or I want to get into product marketing, and at least then you know where people are at, so then you can know how to help them in that journey. But also, it's like quite quickly understanding like how they like to work. How do they? What's their preferred style? You know, some people might need a bit more support and kind of like that softer kind of. like have more personal side or other people then just want to straight get down to business so I think it's I think that from a leadership perspective I learned that pretty quickly on is like to understand people's career aspirations and how they like to be managed I guess and interact and then adapt your style that way
1: okay okay and would you have any advice for uh, anyone who's looking to become a leader um you know how do you go about taking that step Um, and maybe what does that look like in marketing
0: um I just I think that like in terms of getting someone getting into leadership what would be the one thing I would say I would say like build a network I would say if you want to get into leadership like talk to other leaders about leadership and understand their pitfalls you know and the things their recommendation and advice you know and even like to start demonstrating some of those skills and abilities now before you even go for that job, you know, because like leadership, you don't have to be a manager, you know, officially to be a leader, you know? And I think a lot of the times leadership roles, like you, any role I've gotten, I've always started doing the job before I got it, you know, and that's probably why I got it, you know. Sense. So that's probably the first thing I would say. I think what you're saying there
1: really is get a mentor. So find somebody who's been there and done that and has actually bought the t-shirt in that particular role, uh, which will allow you to kind of replicate and mirror them and their success as well, kind of taking on that extra project. And, and you said, well, actually yeah. I'm doing this role now, let's just make it official.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I, it's only, like I only recently kind of in later years in Quest did I realized the value of my network, you know, and support and actually asking for help. You know, I, I do think there's this idea that, you know, you can't show, or sometimes people might feel they can't show vulnerability or ask for help because it might show weakness, but like it's asking your peers, it's, you know, leveraging your network, people you really, really trust and just kind of building those skills there and then i think it will help you to progress because you as you said you'll be able to demonstrate behaviors that show those leadership skills
1: so one final thing before we wrap up is Rena, i'm going to ask you to define an irish or even a cork sense of humor how would you discuss and define the crack
0: oh god we could spend a whole podcast on this really <laughs> uh well the crack is what i'm most passionate about i if i if the crack didn't exist i don't think i would hope in life it's hard to find like i think it's um i think it's that we don't take ourselves too seriously i think we have this really work hard but play hard mentality as well like bring a lightness and a bit of like fun to things that just make it so much more enjoyable um so yeah, it, I think that's probably how I define the crack, you know, and we, yeah, I don't think we take ourselves too seriously. And as well, I don't think we have an ego either. Like, you know, sometimes the Irish were a bit self-deprecating, you know, so I, I think sure. we kind of, you know, joke about ourselves and mock ourselves quite a lot, which is, you know, can be kind of endearing in, in, in ways as well, and just kind of naturally lowers people's defenses. And then all of a sudden when defenses are lowered, it opens other people up to have a bit more fun.
1: That's a great way of describing. And I think we're kind of almost instant rapport builders in that regard. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes cross-culturally, um, I, I think we, have a, we may have some challenges b- when people try to decipher uh, sarcasm versus reality. You know, whether we're actually uh, being serious at this moment or maybe, you know, are we trying to have a poke or a go here, you know?
0: That's so funny. I think we've all had that call, you know, yeah. where we've been uh, we've been trying to be sarcastic and all of a sudden there's silence and you realize maybe with, and the US audience like, oh no, they haven't got it. <laughs> you know, so it's yeah. a fine balance.
1: Yeah, indeed. My job could be on the line here. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, Reena, I really want to thank you for your time today. I think you've added a tremendous amount of value to our listeners. And uh, I think it's been an exciting career journey uh, that I've certainly followed with great interest. So really appreciate you joining us in today's discussion.
0: Yeah, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it.
1: Okay, take care.
0: Thanks a million. Bye. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf talent.com.